All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again. Thank you for your mercies to us, your kindness, all the ways that you provide for us and care for us and discipline us and uh, save us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we pray that our hearts would be open to you this morning and that you would teach us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have uh, three weeks, including today, before this class is over. And uh, so this week, then two weeks after. And so we've, we've gotten lots and lots of good questions. A lot of the questions that we've gotten are very, are, what would I say, very uh, particular and personal, right? Does that make sense? And those are good questions that are, that underneath those kind of very particular and personal questions are bigger questions that I've tried to, uh, Ben and I have tried to kind of flatten out and open up so that we try to get at what's really underneath that particular question. Does that make sense? So uh, the assurance questions that I dealt with several weeks ago, those were two very personal and particular questions that we kind of flattened out and opened up so that they would apply and be helpful to as many people as possible. This question today is just like that. All right, it's a question that um, the original uh, question came kind of in, the, in a very particular personal form, and it had to do with a very personal and particular issue, all right? But then in thinking about what really is underneath that question, it's a bigger question that I think can apply to all of us and that we probably all wrestle with in different particular ways that are different from the way the particular person asked in the, in the first question, okay? And that question is this, what I've flattened it out to, how can I enjoy the world without being worldly? All right? How can I enjoy the world without being worldly? Because the Bible tells us this, 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right? So that's what Scripture says in that one verse. So what does that mean? Um, How does that apply? You can think about the way that that can apply particularly to different people, different struggles. One of them could be, uh, well, just pleasure in general. Look here, here's some questions. Does that mean that I should avoid pleasure? Well, we'll see. Does that mean that I should treat my body harshly? Does that mean that I should feel guilty for every enjoyment in this life? Now you think about this, these are, these are actually very big kind of foundational questions. Uh, think about how that would apply a good case study for this question which we'll see a little bit of today, has to do with food. All right? Um, different people have, have real issues thinking about what does the Bible teach about my body, um, the pleasures that God has put into this world, the, 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 the relationships, things like food, Right? Should I feel guilty for enjoying things? Is that what it means when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world? All right, does that mean you can't love French fries? 
All right. Now I want to open up this question by um, because if you if you think about this, these questions, many many Christians would answer these questions in the by by saying yes. Right? Should I avoid pleasure? Yes. Should I treat my body harshly? Yes. Should I feel guilty for every enjoyment in this life? Yes. Uh, we sh- here's what people think. We should not enjoy the things of earth. Anytime we take pleasure in anything in this world, we're being worldly. After all, 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That means I need to run away from any kind of pleasure in this life. Any kind of pleasure in this life is worldly. Now I want to show a hymn. I want to put a hymn up on the board here on the screen uh, that really captures that mindset perfectly, okay? And it's written by Isaac Watts, and we sing lots of Isaac Watts hymns, you know? Joy to the world is Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross. I, you know, lots of wonderful hymns from Isaac Watts. But look at what he says in this particular hymn um, called uh, How Vain Are All Things Here Below. It's just the first line of the hymn. So look at this. How vain are all things here below, how false and yet how fair. Each pleasure hath its poison too, and every sweet a snare. Does that that feel right? The brightest things below the sky give but a flattering light. We should suspect some danger nigh where we possess delight. Our dearest joys and nearest friends, the partners of our blood, that means our family, how they divide our wavering minds and leave but half for God. Dear Savior, let thy beauties be my soul's eternal food and grace command my heart away from all created good. Now is that what the Bible teaches? Well, we'll see. Think about what he's saying. Does does the grace of God command our hearts away from all created good? That's what he says, that's the prayer, right? Let your beauties be my soul's eternal, and grace command my heart away from all created good. Okay, does that mean um, every created good is something that you should turn your heart away from in order to be godly? Ribeye steak, not allowed to enjoy that. Sunsets, nope. Anyone see the rainbow the other night? Nope, sorry. Don't enjoy that. Sold on your french fries? Puppy dogs? Snow? I know some of you have a hard time with me saying snow, but snow. Uh, How about wives and husbands? Sexual intimacy in marriage? Is that something you should turn your heart away from? How about um, warm blankets? Hot fudge sundaes, children laughing, healthy bodies, friends, soft chairs, crispy bacon. A good book, a job well done. 
So God's grace commands our hearts away from all of that. Is that right? Is that right? Is that what you should want? What's the underlying idea behind that way of thinking? The underlying idea behind that is that physical things, especially physical pleasures, are evil because they distract me from what? So physical pleasures are evil because they distract me from what? How would you, what would be the, they distract me from spiritual pleasures. Okay, so it's either or. It's either physical pleasure or spiritual pleasure. And physical pleasures are bad because they distract you from spiritual pleasure. That's the mindset behind this way of thinking, right? Physical pleasures are bad, spiritual pleasures are good. And so when God commands us in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world, he's telling us, according to this mindset, right, that the physical things in the world and the pleasures that come from them are somehow evil and you should not in any way enjoy or love them. Now we know <clears throat> that we can love them in a way that's idolatrous, but we'll get to that in a minute, all right? But this is saying any kind of attachment to these things is somehow sub-Christian. Uh, now what does the Bible say? All right, gotta go back to the beginning to think to lay the groundwork for thinking rightly about this, and this shouldn't be new to, to most of us, but you have to, it might be new to put it in the place where it actually practically and really shapes your thinking, all right? These are things that shouldn't be new to you, you've read them a hundred times, but you have to actually put them in the place where they actually shape your thinking. So this is the account of, um, from Genesis 1, of God creating the world. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God makes this world full of things, full of creatures, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So he created mankind as male and female right, sexual beings and with everything that that entails. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So he built a world where what? He built a world where we needed to what? Eat. Do plants, I mean, could, could he have made a, a, us so that we didn't have to eat? Just walk outside, soak up some sun, you know, or whatever. He could have, obviously he could have done anything he wanted. He could have made it so we didn't have to eat. But he gave us, he made a world where we had to eat. And not as a necessary evil. And he made the world filled with all kinds of things that are good to eat. Um, your, 
taste buds, right? Who made those up? God made them up. God made sweet and sour and bitter and salty and all that good stuff, right? He made that. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. This is before we, he gives us uh, permission and command, actually, to eat meat. That happens later. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we know that summary after every day of, of the creation week, he, he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. And on the last day, he says, this is, after he looks at all of it, this is very good, right? Very good, not evil, not something that we have to run from, but good. And the Old Testament also shows us that God cares about the creatures he has made. All over the place, it says this kind of thing. He causes the, sorry. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, this is Psalm 104, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. So when you think of this, in, when you boil that down kind of narrowly and think about food in particular, right? Why did God make food? According to this passage, what does it say? Happiness, sustenance of his body? Well, that's true, but that's not what this says, does it? It's actually, he gives us food to sustain our heart. In other words, you can't, you can't separate the spiritual from the physical, all right? Here's another one. The, the Psalms are filled with this kind of stuff. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up those who are, all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God does that. God does that. He does it for mice that are running around in the office here now. He does it for, for you. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He is the kind of God who is full of bounty, full of um, goodness, and he made the physical world just exactly the way he did to give his creatures pleasure. That's not a bug in the system, okay? Pleasure that we get from things like drinking and eating and sunsets and babies laughing and all that kind of stuff is, is a part of the system, it's part of the plan, it's not a bug, right? It's a, it's a feature, it's on purpose. And so the Old Testament is very clear about the rightness and the goodness of physical pleasure. This is um, one of the statements in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a weird book because you gotta figure out what he means when, when he's saying something and all that kind of stuff, worthy of a lot of study. But there's these little summary statements that get plopped in all through the book of Ecclesiastes that kind of come back to reality, okay? And here is one of them. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. 
for God has already approved your works. Isn't that sweet? If you're right with God, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart because God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. God made all of that stuff to be enjoyed. So that's the Old Testament, and you could see this everywhere in the Old Testament, right? The goodness of the world that God has made and the blessings that come to those who fear him. Uh, The Old Testament actually commands that married couples enjoy sexual pleasure in marriage. All right, so this is not just food. So this is Proverbs 5. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. This is a command to married couples to enjoy physical intimacy with one another. This is a command that you may not disobey. This is not something to flee from. It's something to obey. And the the command is exhilaration, right? Rejoicing. Now, uh, it's easy these days to assume that the Old Testament is radically different from the New Testament, right? That the Old Testament is about physical things like land flowing with milk and honey and lots of children and protection from our enemies, all that kind of Old Testament stuff, you know? And that in contrast to that, the New Testament is about spiritual things like heaven and new converts and protection from the devil, spiritually, right? It's easy in our minds to make this dichotomy between Old Testament, physical, New Testament, spiritual. And so we read all these statements and commands from the Old Testament, we think, well, that's nice, but that has nothing to do with me, because I'm a Christian, I live in the New Testament. Um, you know, the New Testament is more, is more spiritual than the Old Testament. And the New Testament calls the physical world evil or dangerous or a snare, like that hymn from, from Isaac Watts. Well, let's look what it actually says. This is Acts 14. Remember when we went through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas come to uh, this town Lystra, and they start, they, they heal somebody and they think all of these pagans, these are like Roman pagan types, and they think that this is, Bar, uh, uh, what is it, Zeus and Apollo, or I can't remember who it was, right? So they start making, offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And here's what happens. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preached the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He created all the world and everything in it. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Think about what he's saying. He's talking to complete pagans. 
not to Jews, but to pagans. And he says, God made the world and everything in it. Not Zeus, God did, the Lord. And he has constantly been a witness of himself to you every time you go outside and see the rain falling on your crops. Right? Every time you harvest. He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What was that a witness to? Do you see what he says? He did not leave himself without witness. This is a witness to, to God. God pours, made a world, right? Made the heaven and earth, sea, all that's in them. And then he sends rain and he sends seasons and he sends crops and they, they raise them and they, they harvest them and they eat them and they're happy. And all of that, the Apostle Paul says, what? Should point you to God. Should point you to God. This is a witness of God. This is, these are not things to be shunned. These are things actually that point to God. And this is why no one is, this is why everyone in the world is without excuse. Because they know God. They knew God. Because God was constantly witnessing to them of himself through the world he has made and through the goodness that he poured out on even his enemies. He says the same kind of thing in Acts 17, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Everything good comes from God. Right? 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Look at this. Pay careful attention to what he says here. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. So these are people who have professed to be Christians. You can't fall away from the faith unless you profess the faith. So there will be Christians, there are Christians, professing Christians, who fall, will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. All right? Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What does that look like? Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Right? Marriage is bad. The pleasures that come from marriage are bad. And food is bad. What does Paul call that? Doctrines of demons. Not of higher spirituality, but of demons. Look at what he says. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God made marriage and food to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Genesis 1, right? Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected 
if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That's the New Testament. Are you with me? It's exactly the same thing that the, the Old Testament says. God made it, it's good. He made it for us to enjoy and to be thankful for. And people who start saying, nope, 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 we're gonna be more spiritual and we're going to say you're more spiritual if you, go, if you aren't married and if you, don't eat in cer- if you don't eat certain foods, that's the real spiritual people. That is demonic. I'll talk about that more in a second. But there's more. First Timothy 6. Talking to Timothy the pastor, Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, right? I'm better than you because I'm rich. No. Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. This is weird what he says next. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So talking to rich people, tell them not to be proud and not to fix their hope on riches, but on God, who is a very harsh taskmaster and wants you to have, you know, to have harsh treatment of the body. That's not what he says. Don't hope in money, but hope in God, who gives us all things richly to enjoy. And then he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what, that which is life indeed. So there's a spiritual component to this, but he, what he doesn't say is, instruct those who are rich in this present world to give it all away and lo- move into a monastery. Share it, be good, uh, do good works. Be generous, ready to share. There's spiritual reward for that. But the whole context of that is there is a God in heaven who gives us all things richly to enjoy. Does everyone, you see that, right? That's what he, that's what he made it for. Not to be hoped in as a God, but to be enjoyed as a sign of God's, of God's goodness. This is what James says. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing given. Every hot fudge Sunday. Every little kitten, I don't know, all of it is good. If there's anything good, it comes from God, the Father of lights. Now, does all that sound different from the Old Testament? Does, that, does the new, everything I read to you in the New Testament, does that sound somehow out of sync with the Old Testament? Does that sound out of harmony with God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good? No. Does, that, does the, the New Testament contradict this from the Psalms? You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. No, it's a complete perfect harmony. Does the New Testament cancel out Ecclesiastes? Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. No, complete harmony. 
Does any of that sound like God doesn't care about feeding us or making us enjoy what he feeds us? No. He made it for us to enjoy. That's what scripture says, even in the New Testament. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament are in perfect harmony about this. God made the physical world. He calls the physical world very good. God made the physical world for our good and for our pleasure. He made our bodies and the world and everything in it to work together in such a way that there is such a thing as beauty, flavor, pleasure, sound that we enjoy, all of that. He made us for that. And when we take God's good physical gifts and enjoy them with gratitude, we are glorifying God. That's what the New Testament teaches let alone the Old Testament. When we take them and enjoy them, we're glorifying God, if we're taking them as Christians and with gratitude. Now, here's the thing. All right, here's the thing. When we either reject God's gifts as evil, right, or we cling to them as gods, so we treat them as demons or as gods, either way, then we destroy what he has made and we dishonor him. To think about this. Some of us tend to think of God's good, good gifts as evil. How vain are all, the thing, all things here below, how false and yet how fair. Each pleasure has its poison too, and every sweet a snare. So whatever you do, don't enjoy it too much. The brightest things below the sky give but a flattering light. We should suspect some danger nigh when we possess delight. So as soon as you enjoy something, ah, no, be careful. So we take God's world, we take God's gifts that he freely and generously showers down on us, the father of lights, every good gift that comes down from him, we take it. Even the, you know, he showers generously down even on his enemies. We take, we, we look at all these gifts and we are suspicious and we're afraid and we call them evil. Even when he himself calls them good. And we try to wrestle our sin by treating God, God's good gifts with, by treating God's good gifts with contempt. All right, we think we're, we're fighting our sin by destroying or treating with contempt the good gifts that God has given us. This is what they were doing in, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. Look at this. He says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, danger, snare, poison, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You see that? I'm gonna fight my sin. And I'm gonna fight my sin by saying, you know, no pleasure. And I'm gonna feel real spiritual as I do that, but as a matter of fact, this is all man-made commandments and all of it is of no value against fleshly indulgence. You think you're fighting your sin, you're actually puffing it up. Why? 
What is this? This is exactly what the, the Apostle Paul says back in, in 1 Timothy 4, as we already looked at. What does he call it? Doctrines of demons, right? Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, forbidding marriage, advocating abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So that is, so my point, that kind of approach to the world that God has made and all the joys and physical pleasures in it is demonic. That's what the Apostle Paul says, it's demonic. These are, these are the kinds of things that a demon would want you to think. But on the other hand, some of us tend to think that God's good gifts are in fact our God's. And so instead of turning away from them as if they will destroy us, we cling to them as if they'll save us, right? Or we worship them as our gods. Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now, often, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. All right. Remember what the King James says there? Their God is their belly. Some have bigger gods than others. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. So this is a, this, right, that's a danger. You can set, you can run away from earthly things and treat them as evil and think you're being spiritual by doing that, and God says, no, doctrine of demons. Or you can embrace it in a way that leaves God out and worship it, put all of your hope in it, find all of your joy in it, and God says, your God is your belly. So both are wrong. Yes, of course it's wrong to make your belly your God to worship the creature rather than the creator, to claw, out, claw for all this, the pleasure you possibly can in this world, because after all, there is no pleasure anywhere else, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, and that's it. That's evil. But it's also wrong to despise God's good gifts, because his good gifts come from his goodness. Beauty comes from his beauty. Good food comes from the abundance of his hand that he opens freely and, and gives to everybody. The joys of physical married love are his idea. He made that up. Not anyone else. And so to call all of that evil is to call him evil. Do you see this? To call God's good gifts evil is to call him evil, and that's demonic. Both are demonic, because either way you denigrate God. If God's good gifts are evil, then God is evil to give them. If God, in giving food, was tricking you, right, then, then God's evil. If the gifts that he give, gives are actually evil, then the giver is evil. Remember what, what Jesus says, when, when you ask, when your children, you being evil, even you being evil know how to good, give, give good gifts to your children. And so when your son asks for a, a bread, you don't give him a stone. That would be, uh, you know, you don't, when he asks for a fish, you don't give him a snake. 
How much more is, is God good? His goodness is revealed by the gifts that he gives. And if God, God's good gifts are evil, then God is evil to give them. And if God's gifts are more important to you than God himself, then God is less than his creation. Either way, you denigrate God. Does that make sense? You make him evil by saying his gifts are evil, or you make him less than nothing by saying his gifts are better than him. Someone has this uh, illustration where he says, you know, if a husband comes home with a beautiful bouquet of roses to his wife, there are two wrong responses on the wife's part, right? Here, honey, I brought you some roses. And she says, oh, you know, whatever. Throws them on the ground. Now, does that honor the husband? No. The other bad option, here, honey, roses. Oh, roses. Oh, I love roses. Roses are wonderful. Roses are great. You know, and the husband's standing at the door. Honey, I gave you the roses. Me. Both of those would be wrong. And those are exactly the two pitfalls we have. Denigrate it or ignore the giver. Now, real quick, all right, I'm gonna to read to you some couple of quotes. This is from William Law, uh, an old Puritan dude in a book called A Serious Call to a, a Devout and Holy Life. No salt on your french fries. And here's what he says. Would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It is not he who prays most or fasts most. It is not he who gives most alms or is most eminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. But it is he who is always thankful to God, who wills everything that God wills, who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. Could you therefore work miracles? You could not do more for yourself than by this thankful spirit, for it turns all that it touches into happiness. Receive everything God gives with a glad and, and grateful heart. Here's another quote from a different kind of guy. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his letters from prison, but I think very wise. Listen to what he says. I believe that we ought so to love and trust God in our lives and in all the good things that he sends us that when the time comes, but not before, we may go to him with love, trust, and joy. That means die. All right. But to put it plainly, for a man in his wife's arms to be hankering after the other world is in mild terms a piece of bad taste <laughs> and not God's will. <clears throat> You'd think he was British, not German, but a piece of bad taste. We ought to find and love God in what he actually gives us. If it pleases him to allow us to enjoy some overwhelming earthly happiness, we mustn't try to be more pious than God himself and allow our happiness to be corrupted by presumption and arrogance and by unbridled religious fantasy which is never satisfied with what God gives. Everything has its time. And the main thing is that we keep step with God and do not keep pressing on a few steps ahead nor keep dawdling a step behind. It's presumptuous to want to have everything at once. 
matrimonial bliss, the cross, and the heavenly Jerusalem, where they neither marry nor are given in marriage to everything there is a season. I think that's good. I think that's right. Enjoy the the gifts that God has given you now. Not as idols, not as demons. Don't fear them. Don't embrace them as your God, but as gifts from God. Now here's what, let's end with this. This is what the apostle John actually says in the full thought of that, that verse we started from in 1 John 5, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What do you mean by things in the world? Oh, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Okay, it's not ice cream sundaes and puppy dogs and sunsets. It's, it's lust. It's, it's the twisting and the perversion of our hearts in relation to those things that he's talking about. All right? So now think about your life. Think about the things. Some of you have issues with, these, with, with guilt, with enjoying anything. And you may not do that. If you're worshiping them as, as your idols, you may not do that either. Okay? All right. Well, we got to be done. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom in this and not to make any provision for our flesh, but also to enjoy the things you've given us to enjoy and not to think, not to make ourselves more pious than you. Please have mercy on us, Lord. And um, thank you for being a good, generous, open-handed, freely giving father to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.